Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Forrest Key. Forrest is founder and CEO of Voodle, a short video app for business teams to capture, share, and discover important business moments as they happen where they work, home, office, or on the road. Forrest is a serial entrepreneur with a 30-year passion for innovation in video platforms. Previously, founder and CEO of hospitality marketing SaaS provider Boutique and visual effects software tools innovator Puffin Designs. He was a founding partner of China-based UX design and development studio for Ot Video Applications, Red Safi, and the founder and CEO of Pixvana, which spent four years developing a VR video platform before pivoting to create Voodle. His other work includes GM of business development in the server and tools division of Microsoft and director of product planning and marketing for .NET platforms and tools. As a founding team member of both the Silverlight and Macromedia Flash video teams, he worked in the boiler room of early internet video infrastructure from 2003 to 2010, which powered the first wave of consumer video apps, including YouTube and Netflix. Welcome, Forrest. Thank you, Shauna. Great to be here. Yeah, good to see you. I'm starting with rapid fire. Hopefully you've had your coffee or I guess you're having your A&W root beer. Is that what's happening? This is like my fifth caffeinated drink of the day. So I'm ready. Oh, geez. So I'll tell you, I just gave up caffeine two weeks ago and I was drinking like two ventis a day and it was like horrible to detox. So just stay on it. I'm super, <laughs> I was super I'm, addicted to caffeine. I, I, I'm committed at this point. It's a new yeah. habit. I turned 40. I started drinking two, three, four times a day and I'm never going back. It's pretty good. I'm sure you're getting a lot of work done. So that's life good. is better. I, I'm actually talking to you today from Hawaii, from the Kona coast of Hawaii. I've been working oh, nice. here rem, remote for two months and the coffee here is phenomenal. The Kona, I love Kona coffee. Are you kidding? Kona coffee, Kona, yeah. It's like Kona ice cream is even better. I haven't oh, done geez. that yet. But the, the oh, coffee, you have to try it. Espressos are amazing. To. Yeah, I completely agree. So, okay. What's your favorite mu movie genre? Well, uh, I actually studied film in college and wanted to be a filmmaker throughout my childhood growing up. So that's a, I don't know if that's a standard question, but for me, that's a perfect question. I, I saw that it was your background. It's a, yeah. it's a specific to you question. Um, well, I thought you were, I was excited. I thought you were going to ask me my favorite movie. So let me tell you that too, as a bonus. So yes. Singing, in the, Singing in the Rain is my favorite movie of all time. And I've given this an inordinate amount of thought. And the reason I say that is that it's a pastiche amalgam kind of film that within it has all kinds of genres of film. So in some ways, I'm a polyglot when it comes to film genres. I like a mix of all the genres. Um, definitely love film noir, 1940s film noir, and, um, and also kind of updated film noir, like the film Brick, which was done in 2000, was kind of made by a Gen, uh, Gen Y filmmaker, and it kind of revisited that formula, but using a modern setting and, and color photography. So oh my God, I feel like I'm like, you're like so next level. I'm like, I feel like I need to get a dictionary. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about? But yes. And I like yes. film. I like Sign film a lot. <laughs> we could talk for hours about film if you wanted to do that in the next podcast. That's great. 
So what's your favorite, you told me your favorite movie and you also covered the genres, which I, half the time I'm like, what is he talking about? But that sounds great. <laughs> um, okay. If there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Ooh, um, you know, uh, I think the travel is an important component of my life experience. I grew up in, uh, as a child in Chile in South America. I lived uh, overseas in college in Spain for a year. I spent two years in China uh, with my family as an expat while I was working at Microsoft. So travel uh, is an important component of anything that describes me. Um, I think it's it's my drug. Uh, I'm not a big drinker. I'm not that into outside of your outside of your AW. <laughs> Other than caffeine, caffeine is definitely something I've developed a chemical relationship with. But I'm not. I get really high off the travel and multicultural and languages and art and things that have to do with diversity. I'm really passionate about diversity. So travel. To answer your question, the title of the book would be you know stories of a of a global nomad maybe something to that effect nice. I've lived, lived in a lot of places and I, really I didn't impressed. know any of that so I, I can't wait to dive into your childhood and I'm dying to go to Chile like it's on my list and I'm a traveler also but I haven't done it enough it's so great you did it with your family it's on my list so I have a I have a, a personal blog at forestkey.com where I just periodically post uh things including things that I don't want to have to answer a thousand times to people so I have a Best things to do when visiting Chile blog posts, which is one of my my all time greats in terms of traffic. Uh, a lot of people talk to me about their trips to travel. I'd be thrilled to to be your. Well, I, I uh, want to go on your website. Personal curator. <laughs> I'll go on your website to save you having to go on repeat because I get but then, that. But then follow up with me, and I've worked in hospitality and the hotel industry, so I, I I'm very oh passionate gosh. about travel and hotels and Chile travel hotels. So come to me okay, for that advice. Done and, done and done. Maybe I'll plan a trip just because of this. That's awesome. Okay. What three words would describe you as a dad? Wow. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, I will say passionate, uh, failing in the sense that there's tons of error and trial and error. And, uh, I would say through the first major phase, because we're empty nesters at this point, uh, I've graduated to my wife and I living independently. So I think that's an important part, uh, transitioning to being a father that's less active, less involved day to day, whereas yeah. you're, you're, you're very much all over the mom role right now as a lot of my friends and my colleagues. So those yeah. would be my, th my three is that, answers. Is that in the past year you've become an empty nester? Yes, there's a big, oh, big transition. That's a, whole, that's a whole subject because of the emotion and then tie that in with the, with the pandemic. It's like those poor kids, it's just crazy. Um, wow, okay. So I like asking this question because I just think you learn a lot about people. Um, what's your biggest pet peeve? Mm, you know, uh, I, I'm bilingual because I grew up in Chile, and there's a, a word in Spanish that's escalos fríos, which is that feeling you get when you hear like fingernails on the um, on the on the on the chalkboard, which doesn't bother me, uh, or you know, people have a certain anxiety or fear about like needles in arms. Uh, the first thing that popped into my mind is the word escalos fríos in Spanish, because I, sometimes I think in multiple languages. Uh, and specifically the sound of women filing their nails with those nail boards. That's so funny. That's, that is a pet peeve of mine. It drives me, it just like attenuates me and I get really nervous in a hurry. So I'm always, you know, shushing, politely shushing women around me, usually my mother or my wife that are doing that with their nails. That's so funny. Yeah, it's not a great sound if you don't like it. I can get that. Um, so if you had an extra hour in the day, how would you spend it? You know, I'm going to, 
evade the question because I feel like I'm using my days very effectively. I don't need an extra hour in the day. And that's not to cop out of your question. It's just a reflection. And, and I would have answered that differently a year ago or two years ago. But right now, that's not the issue. The, I, am a, I am doing a very good job of organizing my day. And frankly, maybe, maybe the right answer is I'd go to sleep an hour earlier because I could probably use an extra hour of sleep. <laughs> Well, I don't want to forget to ask this. Maybe I'll just ask you now. Like, how are you maximizing your time? Because I am always on on the hunt for that. Like, are you a non-TV watcher type of guy? Or are you, like, not, how do you feel that you're not wasting time? I think I'm, um, as of soon to be 50-year-old, my birthday is this month. I think I've got into a maturity. Like, I was an entrepreneur very young in life. Uh, I grew up around entrepreneurs. I moved around a lot. There's a lot of disruption. So, that thing that some people struggle with entrepreneurship is like that, that willingness to take the leap to jump off the cliff and fall to your death and, you know, build the parachute or the airplane on your way to your death. That comes easy for me. So like I, I, I very early in life started companies and Voodle is kind of my fifth startup that I've ever done. And the first time I did it, um, I was 27. It was a visual effects company called Puffin Designs. Uh, I, I quit an amazing, great job that I had at Lucasfilm, which I thought was my dream job where I was working. I met Spielberg. I met Lucas. I was working on Star Wars, literally. Um, it seemed like life couldn't be any better, but two years of doing that, it was long hours. It was a, a bit of a grind. It was already starting to become a little bit repetitive. And I, I just was desirous of something more adventurous that, you know, going out on my own. And I started a company and to answer your question at that time in my life, I thought it was all about working long hours and working hard in quotes. And I think if you were to plot from that age of 27, where my conception of like what a good day at work was, was like long grinding hours and, you know, cumulative minutes spent to what I know now, which is that sometimes a seven hour day is a very, very, very productive day. And maybe having a 30 minute shower, I talk about shower time a lot. I don't literally mean that it's in the shower, but as an example- It's uh, the deep, deep work thinking space. Exactly. So the dynamic, the, the, the kind of mixture of different kinds of thinking is what leads to the best outcomes and the best insights and the best strategy and the most productivity. So I think that's why I feel so relatively confident at this phase of my life is that I know that um, it's in the balance of time, not in the, the the crunch of time. So I don't need, I actually watch quite a bit of, um, I kind of use TV as a kind of sedative to relax at the end of the day. And with streaming media, there's so many options and I'm a film oh yeah. So there, there yeah. I was, last night I was watching Johnny Guitar uh, a film <laughs> that no one's ever seen that I hadn't seen, you know, just a, a 1950s film. Um, and that kind of got me relaxed and mellowed out. And then I went to bed and read a little bit and fell asleep. So I think- You're living you know, your best life in Hawaii, jeez. And, and the temperature is conducive to a certain kind of mel you know, aloha yeah. lifestyle. You know, oh, the, yeah. te the temperature is perfect. So a really yeah. great week for me today is, is, you know, 42 hours of work, 44 hours of work. Whereas when I was 27, it was 70 hours of work. Literally, totally. like that, that was yeah. my conception. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, final question for your rapid fire, you're crushing. I'm like, I can't wait for the rest of this interview. Um, what is a habit that you are trying to create? I have been, because of remote work and because of um, the challenges of communicating and aligning with colleagues, and for that matter, friends too, because I used to spend a lot of time socially. I'm actually an introvert. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't guess that. Frankly, I wouldn't have guessed that about myself. I only learned truly that I was an introvert late in life when within the last decade where somebody said uh, as a litmus test, if being around other people 
exhausts you versus being around other people energizes you. Like that's a good definition of extrovert or introvert. Totally. And I, and I get I get exhausted being around other people, but I'm yeah. good at being around other people. I'm engaged. Well, you're, yeah, you're carrying you're carrying the room probably a lot, and so people think that you're an extrovert. Have you read the book Quiet? I haven't. It's about introversion and how it's like introverts are somehow overlooked sometimes because it usually correlates with a more introverted personality, but you have right. the opposite. You have an extroverted personality with an introverted like internal. That's right. You know, that's exactly. That makes that's, sense. That, that, that makes total sense. And that resonates. And that is, I'm now aware of that about myself. I wasn't aware of that about myself in, in the past. And I thought I was an extrovert and yet it would exhaust me. And it was like, wow, yeah. why, does it, why does it exhaust me? So well, I think, uh, I think this past year, people are learning more about themselves as introverts or extroverts because they're like, I actually am liking my home time. And I was going on like overcharge. I didn't even know that it was a possibility to kind of chill. <laughs> well, and to your question. So the habit I'm trying to form is being a better listener. And what I mean by that is in the, in my old habits with, you know, being able to have coffees, I had like a typical workday for me the last 10 years was eight to nine hours of contiguous meeting with people. There was some times where I'd be like, you know, typing away on PowerPoint or building some piece of content or preparing for some meeting. But the vast majority of my time was interacting with people in small, medium or large size groups, you know, communicating. And in that environment, I developed certain skills around reading people's body language, about, uh, you know, sipping coffee to, you know, pass the talking stick, the proverbial talking stick to share the time to make sure people felt connected. But I find that doing that over Zoom and Slack and, you know, these new modalities with the remote work, it's kind of a new challenge. So I'm really practicing and developing to your question, a habit of like practicing being a better listener. And there's different kinds of listening as you know, it's not just, you know, hearing, it's, it's reflecting, uh, letting the person know that they've been heard, uh, processing, internalizing, changing context for what you say based on how you hear the other person and how, how they need to be, you know, hear things. So I've gotten, I, I thought I was good at this stuff, but I feel like the last year I've really gone into like a graduate degree program of, you know, mastering these skills and I'm, I'm just getting started. I have a long way to go. So that's it's, a it's an incredibly insightful response. I mean, a lot of people are like I'm quitting, whatever it is, you know, I'm trying to start flossing or I'm, you know, trying to quit the habit of um, staying up till three, binging Netflix, you know, just like more kind of measurable transactional things or, you know, just execution of something. Listening better is is incredibly powerful. Um, well, I, I become acutely aware of it because of the challenges of remote work. And, you know, we're all suffering with remote work and the distancing and not being with friends and family and being locked up. I mean, you're in Seattle, so you're more locked down here in Hawaii. At least I get to go out and go to coffee shops yeah. and, you know, everyone wears a mask, but then you can take it off and be out in public. Yeah. So being locked down has really changed everything. It's like things oh, yeah. are not, are not totally. normal. And, well, Voodle's this- going to solve this. I mean, that's what I'm excited to get to because Voodle will be, I mean, because it helps with such a tool around remote work and, um, I'm excited to dig into it, but tell me about your childhood in Chile. Like, how were you raised? So I was uh, born in Marin County in California uh, to hippie parents. That's where I got my name. It was very, um, didn't quite live on a commune, but almost did in my early years. And then my stepfather owned a natural food store that was kind of like a, a PCC, if you're a Seattle person or a Whole Foods, if you're not. Um, called Campolindo, which means uh, beautiful can- uh, field. And my mother worked at Campolindo and they started dating and he said, hey, let's go on an adventure. Let's go to Chile, which at the time was ruled by a military dictatorship known as the Pinochet dictatorship, uh, which somehow se- seemed like a great idea to her. And we moved to Chile. Um, and specifically, I then lived there for six years, mostly in a fishing village uh, called Sapayar. Yeah. How old were you? Uh, I was six to about 11. So it was about five, six years. Very formative years. 
incredibly formative. So I am, but you know, completely bilingual. I actually have the schism in my brain where, as you saw me do a second ago, you asked me a question and I, I was thinking the part of my brain where that feeling existed was in the Spanish part of my brain. So I had to kind of cross over to the Spanish functioning part of my brain. And so they had the, they had the natural uh, grocery store. Were, what were they kind of fueled by and, and how did that spill over into you? Um, well, my stepfather, who was very influential in my life, was an entrepreneur. So he, he had the, the health food store and dozens of other businesses. Lots of them failed businesses. So I was used to see, seeing him take risks and failing and not that not being necessarily the end of the world. Um, and most of his work involved construction in, of houses, so a lot of design build. So I saw him um, crafting you know, spaces, thinking about design, aesthetics. So I think that had a really strong influence on me as far as my passion for kind of the visual arts and, um, and my spatial thinking. I think a lot in space and dimensions and proportions. That's how a lot of I process information. Interesting. And so would you say that he was kind of a hero of yours growing up or were you, did you have people who kind of mentored you or helped develop you along the way? Because I know you went to UCLA. That's, that's like a great school. How did you end up there with hippie well, parents living in Chile? Obviously, you said till 11. So then did you come back? So we moved around a bunch uh, between the age of, you know, up until about ninth grade, I changed schools like 15 times. So I averaged less than oh, one year wow. per school. And that's because I had divorced parents. So I would go back and forth between the US and Chile. Within Chile, we lived in this fishing village. I went to the public school in the fishing village a couple of years. It was a pretty rustic, you know, uh, impoverished little fishing village. So my parents wanted me to have better education. I went to private schools in the capital or in Viña del Mar, which was an hour away. Um, so I moved around quite a bit. Uh, which I think, you know, was traumatic. I didn't experience it as trauma, but that is, as I've learned about brain science after the fact, I think that it was a form of trauma. And I got very good at adapting to new environments, to being comfortable in new places, to making friends. And some of these things that are skills that are powerful parts of my personality, they come from what probably was pretty traumatic as a young child, like just the lack of consistency, not having friends, you know, uh, and mm -hmm. family in a house. And, you know, I meet people that have, that were born in a town and lived in the same town for 18 years and still have that family house. Like my wife, my wife, my, my mother-in-law lives in the home that, that, that's been their home the entire time. There's, my, pros, my there's pros and cons to all of it, right? We always want the other. And, and I'm sure there are people who meet you who are like, how incredible that you've seen so many places, you know, yeah. I'm curious with divorced parents and living like the US Chile, like if there was a consistent like, but these are the values and these are the things that matter. Or were you confused when you were young around what well, kind of what mattered? I think I was on my own. I think I was, you know, really on my own. So a lot of, a lot of my skills, like to become a somewhat high functioning in the sense that I'm relatively able to exist in the world, you know, with an emotional baseline that doesn't go in and out of like bipolar depression or anything crazy like that. I wouldn't say that I, I was bequeathed that consistency yeah. by you may, you may have mentor. had, I mean, I don't know you well, but I sense a, a certain kind of um, grit. I don't know how sudden, what other word it's so overused, but a certain like drive energy and i'm just curious um were you academically driven or were you clear that you wanted to give yourself some sort of bigger life like what was your kind of fuel at that point 
Yeah, well, I, I was going to introduce that you're going to love this because everyone loves this. So I went to Palo Alto High School. Everyone loves that. It's, it's, Pally? It's like, yeah, Pally High. So it's like a celebrity high school. For me, it's just where I grew up and went to high school. Uh, but it is a celebrity high school. And and specifically, you know, the divorced parents are moving around, the, some of the, the failed businesses and my stepfather. So there, was a lot of, there wasn't a lot of permanence in kind of the home life. But that led to us ending up in Palo Alto. And I was very fortunate. I did have a relatively consistent period from ninth from 10th grade to 12th grade in Palo Alto High School. And I did have a mentor there, I'll mention, uh, an incredible woman named Esther Wojcicki. And Esther Wojcicki is not just my, you know, very foundational mentor that uh, I would tell you about. She's like one of the foremost journalism teachers in the United States. And she's been given big grants by the Knight Rider Foundation. And she set up a national curriculum and she's the chairwoman of the uh, of various nonprofits, like just an amazing human being and was one of my central uh, mentors. And to answer your question, like, I think the formation being on the journalism, her journalism program for three years. So I took her intro to journalism class as a sophomore. And then I was one of the editors and then the editor in chief. Uh, that was a really big part of my education. And, and I was interested in media and in filmmaking. And I had this journalism experience and her as a mentor. So I would think that directionally took me towards um, film school. And I applied yeah, to UCLA. UCLA is such a good school. It was great. And that's where I met my wife. So that was the most important thing that came out of UCLA. Yeah. But being in LA, working in the industry while I was in college, I, I worked 30, 40 hours a week throughout my university time in the film industry which set me up really well to like start my career in film and film technology. Yeah. So from film and film technology, it sounds obviously you pivoted now you're a tech guy, but how did, what led to your professional journey in, in media technology? Well, I, the, my, as a freshman at UCLA, I uh, was, I'd already been doing a lot of desktop publishing with PageMaker 1.0 and the early Macintosh in the 80s on our high school newspaper. Again, Pally High, we had like an incredible computer lab donated directly by, you know, the it, it wasn't jobs literally, but very senior executives yeah. from Apple had their kids at the school. So we had a, a wealth of technology and I had had a chance to be using media technology at the very beginning, at the inception of media technology. And I read about, I was very interested in film-based computer animation and using computers to make film because film was still done with, you know, analog chemical-based film, which is very expensive. Uh, and one of the main reasons you went to film school is so you could have access to the lab and the cameras because it was like the access to that equipment was so difficult. Today, if you have like an iPhone like this, uh, if you could take this back in time, this would be worth a billion dollars to the film yeah. industry. The, the yeah. quality, what you can do on this device is absolutely insane. Right. So I, I discovered a company called Avid Technology. And throughout college, I worked for Avid, which was a startup based in Boston. And I was like one of their tech support engineers in LA. So I would go out and install and repair and support the Avid media composer. And that is just very, very luck and timing. You know, it's like very fortunate for me because I became an expert in the Avid. And that I was able to parlay that into my first job out of college, which was like my dream fantasy job, which was working at George Lucas's company, Industrial Light and Magic. And the first month on the job, I met George Lucas and Steven Spielberg oh and worked gosh. with them. Had like it wasn't like met them like there was ten of us. It was like me, an Academy Award winning guru from the industry named Dennis Muren and George Lucas in a room talking. How does just, that happen for like a young kid? I knew the, I was 22 and I knew the Avid and all the older guys, it was all men in yeah. the industry, all of them 
couldn't adapt and learn the new technology. So yeah. I feel like that had less to do with me and more to do with the time in which I grew up and what was going on in yeah. the industry. In the same way that like, you know, 22 year olds today graduating, coming to the market, they know a whole bunch of stuff about sure. the future that I don't understand. Right. So right. that was, I, I was the beneficiary of that as related to film technology. And that's, that was how I got my career started. And in some ways, everything that's happened ever since in some ways goes back to the fact that in college I was working for Avid Technology, which was, yeah at the, the birth of kind of digital film, you know, digital yeah. video. I love these uh, sliding doors parts of people's lives because it's like that one choice, like that one opportunity, look where it led. Um, and super curious what would have otherwise been your story. Um, when did you know that you had kind of the entrepreneurial bug? Well, so then I had my dream job at Lucasfilm and two years later I quit to start a company. So clearly, <laughs> really more of what I was going to be about in life was was uh, being entrepreneurial, starting companies, moving around back to the mm -hmm. travel and the disruption of my childhood. I think I, I really, the first 10 years out of college, I moved around every two years. So there was this yeah. desire to try new things, try new things, try new things, not being satiated and fulfilled. I think any, almost all the jobs I've ever had, I could have done 10 or 20 years and had- Oh, for sure. Well, especially because Microsoft's right in there. I just hung up with someone. Several yeah. of my friends have been at Microsoft for 20 plus years. You know, it's such a different thing. So you've got yeah. the big, big company thing. You've got the startup thing. I would imagine yeah. that your answer to this would be that you're more of a startup person. Yeah, I think I'd look- I'd I kind of look for that first phase of the project is what is what excites me the most. So once mm -hmm. projects get to that second and third phase, I lose interest and I move on. So yeah. again, back to like the trauma, maybe there's a little bit of brokenness in there. I think all of us are broken in different ways. I think entrepreneurs, you have to be a little bit broken to quit a great job working with Lucas. If your dream was to be a filmmaker and work in the film industry, and there you are working with Lucas and Spielberg, and yet somehow that's not enough and you want to quit and start a visual Right. Well, company. you could hear that from the lens of like self-sabotage and some sort of like- yeah sick way, but, or you could hear it as like this smart guy who had a great idea. I don't know the end result of Puffin Designs, if that was like a failure or a success. It was but, a success. Everything I've right. done. I mean, I mean, a fun question I ask people and I reflect on myself, like if you can't think back to everything you've did and, and have learned something from it, like, like something was wrong, something you do different, something that you think differently about today than you did then, then you didn't learn anything. So I, right. I think of everything I've ever done as like, I would do it different. I would have, there would have been something else I would have liked to have gotten out of that experience because that's what I've learned from it. But the yeah. learning is really the takeaway. It's not necessarily the experience itself. I feel like everything I've done professionally has helped me to grow. And like you say, a series of sliding doors, like a pachinko machine, a ball yeah. falling down the pachinko machine. It's like, I am where I am. And I've had the experience I've had because of all these things. Some of them at the time were more stressful or less rewarding, but they accumulate over the course of 30 years of professional career into a tapestry that's very rich. What are some of the key takeaways as far as if you were to say, you know, don't do this or make sure that every time you're assessing an opportunity, you look at it through this lens? Yeah, I definitely, I think of, uh, there was a, a guy at ILM that was really senior, like one of the top five or six guys in the hierarchy in terms of creative accomplishments, you know, title, role, salary, you know, anything that you would use to, to measure kind of the best, the top performers of the organization. And he quit, he decided, you know, relatively early, probably in his early 40s, much older than me at the time, but in retrospect, he was quite young. Um, and he wanted to get into video games. This was like 2000, around 1999. And he was like, you know, I've already done everything I want to do in film. I want to get into video games. And he quit his amazingly senior job. And he took an incredibly junior job at Electronic Arts. And all of us were flabbergasted. Like, wow, that guy went from being like the boss and like respected and nom nominated for the Academy Awards to like an entry-level job that any of the 22-year-olds could have gotten at Electronic Arts. 
But he explained to us and some of my colleagues that were young, he's like, listen, it's about building adjacency and, and, and enriching kind of your, your span of experiences. And then you can always relatively rapidly get back into the hierarchy. And sure enough, like three years later, he was the president of Electronic Arts. Um, oh, oh my gosh, wow. So, so he really inspired me. Uh, and I think that, that he, he didn't even deliver that message to me in a, in a mentoring session over coffee. It was something I saw him do. And that inspired me. Like he was a mentor in the, and just by observing other people perform. Yeah. And I always uh, have thought of my own career that way as, as sometimes you don't want to necessarily move backwards like he did. That can be tough. And, you know, convincing someone to leave, let's say Microsoft where they're making, you know, $500,000 a year to take a huge pay cut to go be a founder. That's hard for people, but it's a kind of adjacency step. And if things go well, you know, within a couple of years, you can kind of be right back to where you were in terms of earnings. So I think, you know, thinking about your career isn't just about income or seniority or title. It's, a, it's about building a body of work that kind of gives you not only joy in the moment, but then when you get to your biggest earning years in your 40s and 50s, it gives you the widest kind of experience to leverage to do something impactful. And, and typically, you know, the more impactful in terms of affecting end users and people, the more valuable it'll be also economically. So really it's about learning how to, course, have, yeah. to move the needle for like, you know, large numbers of people as opposed to just running a small business, but being the president of the small business or something like yeah. that. Tell me about the Puffin um, Designs success because I am seeing, you know, a, a pattern here. Then it says Pinnacle Systems. Was that an acquire or was that just your next deal? No, it was a it was a full on acquisition. They bought the company and the product uh, order of magnitude. It was kind of like we had raised a million dollars and we sold the business for twelve. You know that it was that kind of it was like a ten x or like quickly. You know, yeah, that's great. Yeah, relative. I mean, I was what I was most proud of is we we had like uh, six million in revenue and profitable when we were acquired on just a million of raised capital. We did that in three years. It was a very different era. You know, well, we and you software. were like twelve. I mean, you were a baby. Yeah, I was a baby, first time CEO. I learned on the job. In fact, one of my mentors, uh, who was more of a formal mentor, he was on our board. He said, Forrest, you make every mistake there is to make, but you only make it once. And it was a weighty, I remember the way he delivered it. He did it with a dramatic pause. So at like first that was not, an observation or that was a command? That was him. No, that was him kind of observing feedback in a, oh, that's in a great. where he took me aside and he's like, you know, cause things didn't always go, it wasn't always straight, a straight line to success. There's a lot yeah. of failures along the way and a lot of trial and error. And I was a first time CEO. I was 27. I was a baby. Um, and we were doing something in an innovative space. So it wasn't like we were doing a business of X for Y. It was like we were doing a business of Z that no one had ever done. It was brand right. new so desktop software to do high-end visual effects. There wasn't a market for oh, that yet. So we were creating a market. Up until that time, all the software had been running on SGI workstations. And it was very expensive software. And we were trying to do it on a Mac. So it was a really difficult business. And we made a lot of progress. But his feedback was like, hey, it's good to make mistakes. And learn from those mistakes and, and a great ceo or a great leader is someone that can make not be afraid to make mistakes but also not make them multiple times right and i thought and i thought that was a really interesting um compliment and I, I mentioned to you that i'm actively i'm really focusing on listening a great way to know what you don't know and to to, to move things from i don't know what i don't know to i know what i don't know which is empowering is to listen and that's why I, like even at the ripe age of 50 i'm really trying to practice my listening skills because yeah. i see that as a superpower to kind of shift things from my awareness into knowledge. So you did the Microsoft thing. You're in China. Um, it sounds like yeah, you China, did it again. Like I want to hear about China, but you also did it again because you went and started another company right after kind of the stable, probably well, the, pretty secure situation. So Microsoft in and of itself was a, 
uh, a plotted move to recreate my childhood living in a foreign country for my children. Mm. So my children at the time were the age that I was when I moved to Chile. And I literally went to Microsoft to interview with the thought that I could parlay, maybe do two to three years at corporate and then get sent overseas somewhere on an expat package. And so we moved to China and it was an absolutely incredible experience. I love China. I love the Chinese people. I love Chinese food, the Chinese language. Uh, I have a, a very empathetic view of China. Uh, it's hard for me to see the last four years, the, the anti-Sino kind of, you know, a lot of that creeped into American society and kind of hating on China without a lot of understanding of China. I love China. It's an amazing place. And one of the highlights of my life was living in China for two years. That's really amazing. And I'm sure an incredible experience for your kids. So after China, you went and launched another company, Boutique. So um, Boutique came out of China directly. Uh, again, like the, as you said, the sliding doors, I think of it as a pachinko. It's like I was in China. I was traveling a lot in Asia. I noticed that the hotels uh, didn't have good infrastructure to market themselves directly to guests. I was passionate about travel. I was really passionate about boutique hotels, like really nice, kind of elegant, not necessarily expensive, but like classy, unique hotels. So the passion was for this idea of like creating uh, a storytelling platform that allowed hotels to kind of connect more directly with their guests. And it's also economically advantageous because they don't pay commissions to booking, you know, booking online booking agents. So that was boutique. It was a SaaS software company. We grew to about 200 people in three major regional offices, one in Amsterdam, which serviced Italian and Spanish yeah. and Dutch hotels with you know people that spoke those languages in Europe. We had a team in Chile, uh, back to my roots, Perfect. where we had 50 people doing Spanish and Portuguese, including, interestingly, you couldn't sell, even though it's the same language and it's very much easy to understand, anyone that speaks Spanish in Latin America can be understood, but the accents are regional. And it turned out that a inside sales team selling a SaaS software product from Chile, you couldn't sell someone in Peru the product. You needed a Peruvian. So we had a a call center in Santiago, Chile that had 50 people, including someone from every part of South America. And that allowed us to get the linguistic thing right. And then about 100 people in in Queen Anne, uh, product team was in Queen Anne. And that turned out, you know, that was kind of a dream. It turned out, you know, we had immediate product market fit. It took us about a year to get the V1 out. Immediately, we were selling. The big challenge with that business was learning how to market to hotels, which involved cold calling and and building a kind of online reputation uh, as a tool provider to the industry. And it, it got going, and it was on its way. You know, it kind of seven million in business on its way to ten when we were acquired by Booking.com. Yeah. And you know, we we were looking at term sheets for you know Series C, which is what we called it at the time. We raised sixteen million for that business. We were about to raise another twenty, and we had an offer to acquire the business for a, you know exponential, not exponential, but a, a inorganic amount. And we decided to sell the business. So all the investors were happy. The employees were happy. Yeah. The integration. You know, I think the the highlight of the integration there is we had about ten thousand hotels on our platform. And like a year later, I think it got up to like 250,000. So it was oh, like much, much more successful in terms of the surface area. Yeah. That said, it was very different business. You know, Booking.com is the largest travel online agency there is. So yeah, I want to get to Voodle, but you've got a whole nother startup in between. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically after Booking.com bought Boutique, I, within a year, it was clear that they didn't really need me and we had an amicable separation. So I spent some time as what they call garden leave. It's a Dutch company. So like when you leave the company, they have these very socialist kind of uh, soft landing. So I had like a period of time where I could basically not do anything for work, but I was being paid. And I used that time. I was like, well, look, I love startups. I just had a successful one. What do I want to do next? So I did this like real introspection. I drew Venn diagrams of like, what were my priorities? Where do we want to live? What stage company? What kind of technology? And I was really drawn to virtual reality. 
a startup in Seattle. That was kind of the recipe. So that led to Pixvana. And Pixvana was, without a doubt, the most interesting thing I've ever done professionally in terms of the technology innovation, the quality of the team, uh, absolutely the best thing I've ever done with the absolute least success in the sense that the, the turned out that virtual reality was not really ready for prime time. It's uh, just so you, hard too. It's so much more technical. It's It's such a huge challenge. There's a bunch of usability challenges for humans. Yeah. So there was, there was too many cables, too much, too much, you know, too many yeah. accoutrement to like put it on your face. So the, the category, it was a bet. The company was a bet on the category and like, okay, yeah. this is going to be huge. If it's huge, this is what we'll do. And I think we executed super well on if it had been huge, but what we neglected to consider is what if it's not huge, what if it goes away completely? Yeah. And it wasn't just us, like every VR startup that raised venture yeah. capital basically was dead on the water and some successfully pivoted. So it's just time, like you said, it's timing, but you were able to uh, save your team, it sounds like, and yeah. pivot to go to create Voodle, which yeah, is what we're going to talk about. I'm super let's, excited. Let's talk about Voodle. And that is what happened next chronologically in my career. And it was actually a pre-COVID uh, phenomena. So what happened is at the end of Voodle, the last thing, sorry, Pixvana, the last thing we did is corporate training. And we were starting to like get into the brain science. We had this great mentor, this woman named Britt Andreata, who's a professor down at, UC, at UCSB, Santa Barbara. And she spent a year with us looking at like how virtual reality could be used to kind of create more empathetic connections between humans and how that affects the neuro, the, 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 the brain science of how the neurons rewire and how you can learn new things through empathy. So we started to really, as a team, understand how video and immersive video could really connect human beings and make them feel uh, a sense of empathy. And that was one of the magic powers of VR is empathy. So what we decided to do before COVID is instead of work, being restricted to the, the headsets, these VR things you had to put on your face, what if we did something with the selfie camera? Because the selfie camera is being used by 4 billion consumers a day. So it's mass market. And, and the selfie camera is being used to communicate uh, through short video and photography and memes and emoticons um, is being used to communicate a lot of human emotion, but it tends to be in the social sphere, not at work. So you, with your sister, your cousin, your best friend, your kids, you're using WhatsApp or using Snapchat or Instagram stories, and you're using video and you're talking about, look who I'm with, look where I am, look what I'm feeling. You're expressing really fundamental things that are part of social communication. What you're not yet doing is doing that same kind of communication with your colleagues at work. Your colleagues at work and you are mostly using, this is back in 2019, text and email, a little bit of telephony. So our thesis was, uh, look, what if we did a, a, a kind of video, short video-based kind of collaboration platform for teams, people that work together? And we started off building that in January. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and perfect. Suddenly, it couldn't be more perfect timing. Like timing was good. It was one of, you know, like every business when COVID hit was either like, oh God, is this headwinds, tailwinds, or neutral? Mm -hmm. And a lot of businesses was either like slamming the door shut and people going totally. It's the, restaurants. that K, that K yeah, yeah, response. So um I know that you're you're kind of in beta testing the whole thing. Or say, you've launched I, like what's I want to know the business model. Like how are you gonna yeah. make money? We, we, we need users. We need monthly active users, MAUs, as they call them in the, in the industry. Uh, and we don't have those yet. So in other words, we have well, you hundreds. Got, you got more. I'm, I'm one. We have hundreds of daily users, not tens of thousands. Uh, yeah. We have thousands of teams, not, not hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. So we need, we're, we're what's classically referred to as product market fit. We're looking to get the feature set right, the value proposition right, and to get things going. What I can tell you is I, I can't talk to anyone who doesn't, respond positively to the idea of short video at work. The problem is from the idea of like, hey, that would be interesting. 
too. Okay, now I understand exactly what to do with it and how it's it's disruptive and well, and how to and, and adoption because I've got sixteen employees and I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to set up some Slack channels and integrate it and use Voodle, yeah. and I'm going to try to use it with more leadership. Like, quick, I don't I don't need to have the whole like let's do a Zoom or let's do a call. I want that like yes, um, that's, nuanced that's, kind of. That's exactly where it fits in. Is between kind of Slack is is good for transactional exchanges. Yeah, like, but hey, it what can time get is lost in translation. It can, yeah, it's just too transactional. So we were thinking um, as a recruiting firm of just making it like um, client channels, like a pitch for candidates. Like if mm-hmm. we're working with you guys, like, hey, this is the Boodle role. This is how we're going to talk about it. This is what they do. This is their funding, so that we yeah. don't have to repeat it. And it's just to create yeah. some efficiency for us. I'll, I'll tell um, you, like w- w- people, the kinds of people that signed up. So what I would to answer your question, I think what we have is a advanced prototype. It is a V1. It's, you know, as the, as the saying goes, if you like your first release and you waited too long to ship, right? So we, we shipped something that we knew was embarrassingly not finished and wasn't didn't meet our needs, but we wanted to be live with customers. And we've had thousands and thousands of users give us feedback, which is awesome. So that's been mm-hmm. the first six months. At the end of last year, we recapitalized, raised additional money, almost all but a, one or two of our existing investors, including all of our major investors participated in the round. Uh, so kind of a really strong vote of confidence from the team. And our board that had been supporting us in the VR journey. And we basically raised $6 million in the fall. And we're now off and running, rebuilding the team, adding adding volume. We had about, um, from a personnel perspective, about 15 of the Pixvana team stay through all the way through the transition. We were thrilled to be able to hold on to the team. It was an amazing team. They were excited about the new the new vision and mission of the company. Uh, and basically, where we are with the product is we have a really good Android, iOS, and web V1. And we're working on those scenarios and the core workloads where this is really the where, where it'll first be adopted. I think over time, if we meet in 10 years, there'll be a lot of short video at work, undoubtedly. I think it's, yeah, this is definitely um, kind of, how do they call it? Like just an innovative company as far as I haven't heard of other companies doing it. And it is one of those like, oh, aha moments of like, oh, I should have thought of that. Like it's, it is a yeah. great idea. And, and the I, timing, I think, given how relevant the conversation is around the future of work right now. Um, obviously this remote work idea is here to stay. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I would, I would, I would reflect to you as a, as a kind of comparable, think about like short text messaging at work. You know, you're, you and I are similar, um, you know, age in terms of time, time in industry. When we were in college, there wasn't email, there wasn't an internet. Then there was like this big thing, you know, email was a huge component, fax machines, like as new communication technologies come in, there's like a crossing the chasm classic kind of curve. And if you think about text messaging at work, um, you know, really text messaging started with the complexity of the phone typing on a T9 keyboard where you had to hit, you know, the JKL button three times to get to the L. So text messages were short in part because they were hard to type. Uh, you had AIM, America Online, and some Messenger. You had MSN Messenger, like the first messaging applications, and you had text messaging over cell networks that started to become a big, big deal. Then it kind of started to make its way into like social media, like Twitter. There was a very important company called Yammer, which was like Twitter, Yammer. Yeah. Twitter at work. And they had 6 million people in two years and a billion dollar exit to Microsoft. And then five years later, Slack. So it's not like the world went from like, oh, everything was email to suddenly Slack emerged. It was a very long journey where short, where people got inured to the idea of using short messaging with text. Um, similarly with short video, I think there wasn't any video of any kind that could be produced by any at any meaningful scale until about 2002, 3, 4. Uh, that's when cameras started to become uh, much more affordable, including phone cameras. That's when encoding and, and, and streaming video became possible. So video as a format that could possibly be used at work for communication in any meaningful way is only about 20 years old, 
yeah. less than that, 17. So I think Voodle, you know, is is on the forefront of trying to do something with short asynchronous video. And I, undoubtedly it's going to be a thing. And we're trying to figure out exactly where is it a thing first and foremost right now. And case in point, you use the example you as a recruiting firm, we're using it among other things to welcome new employees. And we see a lot of totally. our customers customers using it. So you join a new team, you don't get to go out to lunch, you don't get to go to an all hands meeting. Instead, you want to form a little bit of a bond with a bunch of people that you work with that you're now you know, welcoming a new employee and a little short video saying, hey, nice to meet you. Let me show you my home office. Let me show you my totally. pet. I, I love it. I'm lunch with. So yeah, it, it kind of um, hits on so many cylinders because there's the team building, there's the connectivity. It also can impact productivity, like with the way that we're using it right now, at least. Um, and then also just collaboration, because I would imagine in our business, it's just a services business, like we're either servicing the clients or we're not. But when you're building a tool and you're building a product, there's so much collaboration that happens in person that you need that nimbleness of video. All of us at work, what do we do at work? A lot of the time we spend is getting connected and aligned with our colleagues. So in your case, it might be like reviewing the status of the candidates and who's who, who's a finalist, whether the you know is the customer your your customer doing a good job closing. That's all about alignment between your team. And some of that alignment can be done with a spreadsheet or a document. Some of it can be done through text or a phone call or video. But what's lost right now that you used to do all the time were those in-person conversations that could be short, mm -hmm. they could be spontaneous, they're full of rich empathy, which we don't get, you know, I'm looking at a little thumbnail of you on my screen. It's not the same as being in the same room. There's a lot more cues to read in body language when we're in person. So we think that the, you know, you use the, all the magic ingredient words that we've discovered are really central to what we're building with Fiddle. It's about human connection, like having that sense of hearing one another back to like my big project is being better at listening, right? And, and reflecting to people that they're heard and then creating a sense of, of alignment. Alignment is like when you're able to go do work and execute, there's a whole bunch of time spent getting connected to be able to have alignment. And then the third thing is just the artifact, this thing that the document where you record and everyone can look at it and say, there it is, we all agree, we know what we're doing. It turns out when you're using video, you get this great artifact. You have the video, you have the the, the text and the audio that comes out of that because we transcribe the, the, the spoken word into text. So you can see a little script of what was said. And we've actually started to use artificial intelligence to take the the script, you know, what people said and have the AI summarize on this thread, Sean and her team are talking about this candidate for this company and the decision was X. And it's actually crazy how good those summaries already are. You know, it'll only get better in the next five or six years with AI. But we already can, you know, are really excited about this idea that if you are voodling and you're creating this little asynchronous conversation that's done remotely and it's short, 60 seconds long, we can actually create this really interesting artifact that allows you and your team to feel like super connected and aligned. So that's what we're trying to build. That's kind of the aha moment of Voodle is a sense of connection yeah. and alignment. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And we're talking about also body language and how you learn through all these 10, you know, coffees that you would have a day, how to read people. That's really hard over Slack, really hard over text. The sentiment, right, is just lost. It's yeah, not just the words. It's like, what's the, what's the part of the white paper that's not written? Yeah, and you and you and the other thing with diversity and inclusion, and we talked about uh, introverts. You know, it turns out on your team, so you have 15 folks that you work with. Not everyone is equally confident in a Zoom call, interrupting or you know wrestling the talking stick away. Someone that's more junior may not be as confident in their, their thoughts. It turns out with a Voodle, like it's almost like equal time, equal access. It, it's limited to 60 seconds, so you don't get these monologues of people like doing a seven-minute speech, which nobody wants to watch. Nobody wants to watch a seven-minute-long video. So it forces you to be economical, precise, concise. And then like the quietest, shyest, youngest person on the team 
his or her voice is heard now all of a sudden. Yeah. It's right up there. It's right up there with the with the owner's voice or the CEO's voice. So it leads to this really inclusive participatory environment. And every time we've used Boodle internally to make decisions and we've we kind of have been dog fooding the product, I'm just amazed at how great the ideas are of the 20-year-olds on the team that can now be heard. So it's a much more powerful kind of DEI engine. To how, how do you how in. do you um how do you get them to participate? Because I know that for us, when I do certain initiatives like Certain people who are just kind of those people on my team do it and other people have to kind of pull it out of them a little bit more. Yeah, some of this is like features we're about to release. So if you go try Boodle uh, on your team tomorrow, you won't yet have this feature, but within a week or two, you're gonna have this feature, which is what we, we, we noticed that like the most common engagement when teams really got going on Boodle, there was a, a prompt response pattern. So we're bringing that to the fore so that you or anyone on the team can say, hey team, Here's a prompt, like such as like, hey, what do we think about this account? What do we think of this competitor? What should we do about this morale event? Like, what, what's our thought about lunch tomorrow? Like, whatever it may be, it's basically somebody suggesting to others, let's have a participation, a conversation where everybody gets to kind of speak up through Voodle asynchronously. And that creates like a stream. So you get this little like conversation that's, you know, here, here comes Shauna, here comes Mike, here comes Paul, here comes oh, I Beverly. I love that. That's and super that, cool. And that, so that, that engenders a participation. And we've even thought, we haven't implemented this yet, of not showing the results until a certain number of people have participated. Yeah, I think that's great because otherwise there's influence like bias around that's right. the voice. That's, yeah. that's right. And there's a lot of research yeah. that shows that that, that that bias. So you don't want to yeah. know, like like you want the young person on your team to not be intimidated. You may you may have, have, have piped up as the, as the owner. As early, or, yeah. So you want to you want to let everyone participate because you know what sometimes the twenty year olds have the answers like more often than not it's kind of shocking. Oh, so many of our cool ideas in our company have come because I'm very much like and no idea is off limits like bring it, and then I let them like run with it and some of our best stuff has come from the more junior Diver the more junior people. Diversity is uh, in all of its forms is a superpower and yeah. diverse teams win and diverse teams kick ass and take names over non-diverse teams. So, so tapping into diversity of the style of communication, the seniority and ranking of the caste system that exists in most companies just because of age, um, really Voodle seems to be a really liberating medium because it's asynchronous and that, yeah. that alone leads to some different participation. How does your passion for diversity and inclusion inform your recruiting style and approach? Like, how do you vet a good Voodle employee? I really over-index to in the at the recruiting phase with candidates. Like, if we're just seeing white males as candidates, I'm just like, look, I don't care. We need to keep looking. We have to find some diverse candidates. Like, that's a must because you just want to see what's out there. And sometimes it's harder. And myself as a 50-year-old cisgender white male you know, like my network tends to be people like me and I want to find people that aren't like me. I want to find diverse yeah. well, voices. Well, and you're smart to be thinking like that right now. I'll give you a really simple example that I didn't know, you know, women perceive from a psychoperceptual anatomy brain science way, perceive virtual reality different than men. And, of course. And we, we had a men, a male heavy founding team at Pixfana and we had a couple of young women on the team. And one of them was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. That's not what I'm seeing. And that brought to the fore the fact that we needed to have a more inclusive mindset about the experience of different body types and different genders. Um, with Voodle, the age thing is a big thing. Like 20-year-olds feel very differently about the selfie camera because they grew up with it, right? Yeah. Uh, then even Gen, you know, like Gen Y, Gen Y is kind of old hat, you know, like they don't really get TikTok. You know, it's the 15-year-olds that really yeah. get TikTok. I met a 17-year-old woman uh, yesterday, Sunday here in Hawaii. I was talking um, to this media personality that has 800,000 um, followers on TikTok, and she does a, 
a really, she's actually uh, a, a Seattle native. Her name is Tori. Uh, I should introduce her to you. She'd be great on your podcast series. And she has a website called Her First 100,000. And she basically has this um, pitch about like empowerment for women, for young women around financial uh, awareness. Oh, I feel like I've heard of her. This actually sounds really familiar. Yeah, she's up. She's I would very love an introduction. That would be awesome. I will. I, I don't, I'm forgetting her last name, but Tori and Tori has like an, a, a person on her team who's a 17 year old high school student yeah. who is here in Hawaii with her, who does a lot of her, her back end SEO. Oh my gosh. My 10 year old is like, could do all this. It's crazy. And, and I was talking to the 17 year old over coffee and I'm like, oh my God, it would be awesome to have this 17 year old on our team. Like that there's something that she knows or skills that she brings to the table. Oh, for sure. For that sure. have to do with her generation. So, so really, you know, opening up and that doesn't mean that 50 year olds and 60 year olds aren't great. They have other things to add, but really yeah. diversity wins and and that's a big part of recruiting is diverse yeah. teams so what are your goals for the company and how can people who are listening um feel just confident trying it like who's the who's the perfect like let's do this right now well because um you know, really what it is, is it's, it, think of it as the simplest form and its current form is like a WhatsApp that's video centric. So mm-hmm. think, you know, and, and, and Americans don't as much use WhatsApp, but it's used by 2 billion people globally. Yeah. It's a huge app. And if you don't use WhatsApp, my first advice. Well, well now I'm, Signal, Signal, people are switching over to Signal. I was going to say, I'm not a huge Facebook fan and I don't like some of the things they do with privacy and the impact. Especially right now. Yeah. So, so I have, I am morally compromised by, by WhatsApp, but because in Chile, 99.9% of Chileans use WhatsApp. That's how I stay connected to my family in Chile. Signal is, is WhatsApp, it's private. But basically that modality of like going in, having conversations, starting conversations, but doing that with video, that's what we do. So mm-hmm. you can try it with friends and family. You can try it with like, you know, college buddies. You can try it with some, you know, network of peers. It doesn't have to be the people you work with at work. We find that it's best for teams of like 10 to 20 people that want to kind of form a, a human connection and get aligned around subjects. That's, that's awesome. So it could be anyone. So that's kind of the target. And then what about the goals? Like when will you feel like, hell yes, we hit it. We, we just need, um, we'll know when we've hit it, when we have thousands of returning customer users that are starting to form a habit around using this kind of technology. It's free. We're not looking to monetize at this phase. Basically for this kind of series C plus round of $6 million, success would be you know, crossing into hundreds of thousands of daily mm-hmm. or month, monthly active users, let's call it. So that, that's the current KPI, the, the key performance indice what we're yeah. after. Uh, if I talk to you in 18 months, it's like, we did it. We have 100,000 mouths. We crushed it. That would be fantastic. That's all. Well, I, that's th- I think for. you're definitely on your way. So given all this and given you're trying to do more of a 40 something hour week, how are you relaxing in between all your movies and your TV? Like, do you have a spiritual practice or some way of like, besides TV of just kind of lowering your stress? Yeah, my spiritual practice is, uh, is reading and is media. So I, I really, I read a lot every day, uh, a lot of fiction, sorry, nonfiction. Uh, I'm reading more fiction. That's, that's really enlightening. Um, I mentioned the broken earth series, which was just a mind blower to like, think of a fantasy world from the point of view of a, of females, like all the main characters are female or non-binary, uh, non non-gender binary characters. So it's fascinating to live in that universe with like different different problems going on, but a lot of metaphors for problems that we have in our society. Um, and I find a lot of spiritual comfort in that. So that's kind of my spiritual practice is is uh, intellectual thought around things that I read or things that I see. Yeah. Like like I watch a lot of movies and like they really rock my world. Are you, do, are you doing any audible? Like I feel like if I was there and staying next to you, you would see me walking on the beach listening to an audible or a podcast or maybe catching up with a friend, but probably yeah. I uh, 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 probably I probably do four to five hours a day of reading, listening to audible, 
watching TV. Like that's a big wow. part of my day. And, and you know, it late into the night. So I've been listening. I always have a book on Audible I'm listening to or a podcast. And then I have a, a book that I'm reading and I'm always watching every, almost every wow. day, a couple, an hour at least or two of media. So that, that fills up, that fills up a lot of my time. Yeah. Uh, I've been I, I trying to, I'm, I'm, I used to be into long distance running. I haven't been doing that here at all. So I'm trying to get back into more of a, of a meaningful cardiovascular um, project. But for now I'm, I'm taking some aloha time and just relaxing and enjoying Hawaii. Yeah. Well, you definitely deserve it. I can tell you after doing like a hundred of these, this is going to be a top one. You're so interesting. And, and you talk so fast. I can't imagine hearing you in Spanish. Like say, say a couple things. Mira, hablo español igual que hablo inglés. Con mi familia en Chile hablo con un acento muy chileno como este. Pero si hombre estoy hablando con un español, le pongo un acento un poquito más de Madrid como debe ser. So I just switched between two accents there. When I talked to people, yeah, towards the end you sounded like narcos. That was Spanish, like Spain. I started off with a Chilean accent. So I have a good a good friend in Madrid, and whenever I talk to him, I find myself falling back into that Madrid accent. And in Chile, I go to the Chilean accent. I, I can't stress enough how awesome China is as the tur- for tourists. Like it's incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So Forrest, my final question I ask everyone this is what fuels you? Like what's your ultimate fuel legacy type stuff? Um, I think that being a good example to my family and to my colleagues and to, I like being a good mentor so I like to live a life well lived. I, you know, because of the death of my son last year, I'm very, and I've I had my stepfather pass away. So I'm closer to death, um, not to sound like it's, I'm not ready to die tomorrow, but if I did die tomorrow, I'd be okay with it in the sense that I went through this with my trauma therapy. I'm trying to live every day. Like it might be my last and just like be in the moment and not feel like there's something that's in the future that I'm doing all this work now for the future. I'm doing the work now for the moment. So I'd like to think that um, if I can nail that ethos that not only gives me peace, including some spiritual peace, but that it also adds value to the universe because the people around me can kind of see me in that state and be inspired and trying to inspire. That's others. super beautiful. I feel super inspired. I'm like taking notes. Okay. My final question, I told you that other one was, but now I need to ask, do you have a doppelganger? Uh, sometimes, uh, is it Adam Sandler? Uh, Adam Sandler for sure. That was going to be my first. Oh my God. I'm literally like a little bit older is Dustin, a young Dustin Hoffman. I get that one a lot. Yes. Uh, or a young Forrest Keaton and Dustin Hoffman were very close. Yeah. Those would be the two biggies. That's so funny because as I'm talking to you, I'm like, this is someone. And all of a sudden I go, wait, it's Adam Sandler and Dustin Hoffman. I hadn't thought of that one. Okay. Well, thank you, you. Thank you. Who do you, who do you get? Uh, you you look like you, you could have a lot of them. Uh, Julia Roberts comes to mind. Something about your hair. Oh my God. I just lightened it. So thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> I love Julia Roberts. Um, I actually get a different actress. I All the time I get um, uh, Sandra Bullock. Oh, right, 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 right. I don't was, see it at no. all, but. No, no, no. That's absolutely true. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for being on the podcast. So fun. Oh, my great pleasure. And uh, and coincidentally, I hope we can do some great hiring together. I'm excited about recruiting. That's one yeah. of our, our big goals for the year is to be successful placing some key roles. So I look forward to talking to you more about that. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.